Welcome to Phil Interrupted. Are you out of your damn mind? You get to drink from the fire hole. This is an embarrassment of this face. What? What's the matter, kid? You got wax in your ears. Hello and welcome to Film Erupted. This is the show where I get to do whatever I want without having to deal with the constant antics of Derek Batacek. I am your host, Phil Allen, and I do welcome you to the show. So before we get started here, I want you guys to listen to something. Now, imagine yourself on the slopes of Mount Everest. It might sound a little bit like this. Winds can reach 75 miles per hour to over 100 miles per hour in certain scenarios. There could be a blizzard, it could be snowing, or it could just be intense wind with negative 40 degree temperatures. This is a cruel, inhospitable environment. You may be trying to sleep in your tent at the different camps upon the mountain, and your tent is rattling and shaking from hurricane force gusts outside your tent, making it nearly impossible to sleep. Today, we are going to be talking all about Mount Everest. So, welcome to Phil Interrupted's Mount Everest show. The triumph and tragedy of the world's tallest mountain. Mount Everest is located in Nepal, and it reaches a staggering height of 29,029 feet above sea level. Mount Everest is part of the Himalaya Mountains. Uh, This is a region uh, north of India, uh, in the Asia region between China, Tibet, and Nepal. It is the largest mountain range on Earth. Uh, It is a a pretty incredible place. It puts the Rockies and some of the other mountain ranges across Earth to shame. I mean, this is the big boy. This is the big one. And it's actually still getting taller. Uh, Right now, the tectonic plates are still pushing, and the Himalayas are getting slightly taller each year. Now, how they formed originally, as we know, all the Earth's continents were together, and they started separating, and the plates were moving, and the Earth was very young, it's shifting, and different chunks of land are breaking off and pushing other areas with the oceans, and it's creating mountains, it's creating islands, uh, and continents, and they start to move out to where we know them on our current uh, maps, you know, of today. One of the major tectonic plates was pushing north uh, of India, and it banged into the Asian continent, and it began a staggering push north up over the Asian uh, tectonic plate. Now, this area is known to have many earthquakes, uh, many avalanches in the mountain area because it is still an active zone. Like I said before, they are still getting taller. It it, it built quite quickly, actually, in the... um, grand scheme of the earth these mountains built very quickly very high and something of a very interesting note that i found out while researching uh things about mount everest is this is pretty shocking they had uh, a climber uh scientist had a climber go up to the the top of the mountain 
and bring back uh, rock samples for them to study. Now, this is a very difficult thing because it is hard enough just to get to the top of Mount Everest, let alone bringing back any kind of extra weight and things like that. So this is a very experienced climber. They had go up and get these things for them. So he, he knocked off some chunks of rock and he brought them back down for the scientists to uh, examine. He took one sample from the summit, the very, very top, the, the uppermost piece that he could find to uh, chisel off. He brought back and it's maybe six to 12 inches, nice little piece of rock, put it in his backpack, came back down another thousand feet or so, knocked off, found, you know, through all the snow and stuff. There's jagged rocks that stick up in areas, some areas where the snow doesn't stick because of the wind blowing the snow away, things like that. Found another spot, knocked off uh, another rock there to take another sample, went down another thousand, two thousand feet or so, did another one. So these are rocks that are on top of the earth, the highest peaks. And they're taking these samples. And this is really interesting to note. The sample that was taken from the summit ended up having marine fossils in it. Now, whoa, whoa, what? Fossils? Marine? Ocean? How's that possible? This is the tallest place on earth. There's no possible way that this could have marine organisms in it fossilized no way jose that's what they said <laughs> they said they said no way jose <laughs> yeah. but no the test revealed that indeed they had found uh squid fossils little ancient squids that i guess whatever you know died in some rock way back when and they also found different types of marine plants so as shocking as it is to think they were stunned when they saw these results mount everest the very summit 29,000 feet above sea level was at one point actually sea level. So that's pretty incredible to think that the earth has pushed that high up over millions and millions of bajillions, trillion, quazillion years to get that high up into the earth's atmosphere um, that that it was actually at sea level to begin with. So I just thought that was a crazy fact that I learned uh, while I was researching Mount Everest. Now let's get into talking a little bit more about the people who have explored Mount Everest, which is truly fascinating. These people who climbed the mountain have got a lot of stories to tell you about. A lot of them are tragedies of people who did not make it back down the mountain and there's also some some stories of people who have made it to the top and they talk about what an amazing feeling it is to get to the top of this mountain. There's something about the mystique of Mount Everest that brings people coming back year after year after year to try to get to the summit. And there's something of a calling to the mountain for people all around the world. It's an adventure. There's something that people want to find in themselves. Hey, can I conquer the tallest mountain in the world? Can I be the only person or, you know, a few people at the summit standing on top of the world? I am at a higher elevation than any other human being in the world. So there is things that drive people to do it. In the course of researching this and learning about Mount Everest, various people that I read about and watched shows about, they did it for all sorts of reasons. Some of them, which I just stated before, they wanted to, they wanted to be on top of the world. Some people wanted to be the youngest person in the world to do it. Some people wanted to be the oldest person, the first person from their country, the first woman 
to do it from their country or the first woman to do it multiple times or without oxygen. And we'll get to the oxygen part later, but, um, you know, various different reasons, whatever it may be, you want to summit the tallest mountain on every continent. Needless to say, there's countless different reasons why people want to take on this mountain and getting to the summit is the absolute pinnacle. It is the pinnacle of climbing And with that being said, there's actually many other mountains around the world that are much more difficult of a climb. Mount Everest itself is not actually considered one of the most difficult climbs uh, in terms of, uh, you know, going up steep cliffs and the the difficulty level. You don't have to necessarily be an expert, expert, expert climber to make it up to Everest. But you have to be in great physical condition. You have to have good weather conditions. The weather is absolutely critical. And you have to have the drive and willpower to do it. So a lot of people are now amateurs. These aren't experienced mountain climbers. These are amateur people who will pay upwards of $50,000 to be taken up to the summit by guides and people called Sherpas. Now, a Sherpa, it's kind of a weird term for us in the Western world. We go, a Sherpa? What the hell is that? Right? That's what I thought when I first started learning about this a sherpa is essentially how it started is the tibetan people the nepal nepal nepalese nepalese people is that how you say they are obviously some of these people they they, they live in the area yeah obviously so they know these mountains very well these are very experienced mountaineers and these are the people that became known as sherpas uh and they add that to the the end of all these people's names. So the name could be like Lang Song Wu Wang Wang Sherpa or, you know, Huli Mang Mang Hang Sherpa. And they add it to the end. And it's basically a title saying that this person is an amazingly experienced mountaineer. They are a great climber. And this is a person that should be trusted at all times. So you've got these various guides from the Western countries who are taking in money from amateurs and even experienced climbers as well. And they will bring them to Mount Everest and help guide them up the mountain with the help of all these Sherpas. So it's kind of a crazy phenomenon. There's this whole world going on around Mount Everest that you may not be aware of, and I wasn't either. So there's a whole lot more here to learn about Mount Everest. So... Keep it locked here, guys. Don't go anywhere. We are talking Mount Everest. On the ascent to the Mount Everest summit, there are two basic paths that you can take up to the top, two routes. One is called the north side. This is the less popular of the two. Uh, Plenty of people have still done it, but it's not quite as popular for different reasons. The most popular route is the southern route. It's called the South Coal. This is far and away the most popular way. It's from the Nepal side of the mountain. One does not simply walk up Mount Everest. There are various camps and different levels that you need to get to to adjust to the altitude and things like that. You don't just say, hey, I'm going to hike up in one day. This is a very serious undertaking, and it takes most people a solid month or two to get up to the top. That's a long time. That's not any short stretch of time that's that's a serious commitment and most of these people have been working many jobs 
or have been training for years and years to do it initially their first time around and you got to travel all the way across the world or wherever you're coming from, you get there and you don't just simply take a helicopter or fly into base camp. Base camp is your first camp essentially on the mountain. And it's not at the base of the mountain. It's not at the base of the mountain at all. What most people do, and it's highly, highly, highly recommended, is you start in the foothills of Nepal. You start in the foothills and you hike your way across with your expedition team. And you start and you hike and it takes... It depends on the group, but it takes an average of around two weeks to reach base camp, which is around 16,000, 17,000 feet on the mountain. So it takes you two weeks just to get to base camp. And base camp, you still, you're at 17,000 feet. You still have to go all the way to 29,000 feet. And that's when the conditions get very severe. So you've just started your climb of this mountain by the time you even reach base camp. And like I said, it's very expensive. It can be forty, fifty thousand dollars uh, to make an attempt towards the summit, and there's absolutely no guarantee that you are going to make it to the top. If you are sick, if there are weather conditions, if you are too slow, if time is not permitting, various, various, various reasons why your guide or your Sherpa will either uh, take you back down the mountain or just flat out say no, because it is an extremely extremely dangerous thing to do and if you are not in your peak physical condition and you are not adjusted to the altitude you are gonna die on this mountain there's no jokes no messing around you will die on this mountain so guides take it very seriously their number one thing that they're uh that they're doing is it's their job to make sure you're alive yes they want to get you to the summit because you've paid a load of money to try to go up but it is their number one job to keep you alive whether you want it or not you may be doing really great and see the peak and you're like i can make it i can do it but you can't and they know better than you and they will tell you to go back down and they'll have someone go with you and so some people's dreams don't get realized but it's better to be alive than to be dead because to do a little foreshadowing here there are over well over 200 bodies, corpses, littering Mount Everest. Now, another interesting note here is that most attempts are made during May or sometimes during April. There's generally only about a two to three week, sometimes four weeks if the conditions are really good, but generally only a few weeks of the year that you're able to ascend Mount Everest. The reasons for this is if you wait too long, the monsoon season will come. And on top of this mountain, that's going to mean crazy blizzards, absurd wind speeds, and the humans just not designed to live in these conditions. It's it's too much. It's like being in outer space, essentially. It's too cold. It can reach negative 70 degrees. Negative 70 degrees, and I'm talking Fahrenheit here. I don't know what that is in Celsius because who cares about Celsius, but it is insanely cold. You can't do it. It's too much. It's too much on the human body. So there's only this very brief window that you can actually get to the top. So all expeditions and everybody who's trying to get to the top is sort of stuck doing it in this very brief window. So let's get back to base camp which is, again, around 17,000 feet, 17,700, I think, exactly. So you just hiked 
for a week or two to get into base camp. Okay. You think, well, you know, the next morning I'll get started and I'll start heading up the mountain. No, you probably have to stay at base camp for roughly two weeks, again, to acclimatize yourself to the high altitude so that you're not getting sick. Because the higher you go in Earth's atmosphere, the less oxygen there is for you to breathe and less oxygen that your body can can absorb. So the less oxygen, the more you'll get crazy, you'll do stupid things, you'll make bad decisions. So your body needs time to get used to it. And as you, the more time that goes by, your body can uh, become com- completely okay with the conditions and you can be able to continue as if nothing, you know, you weren't at a, at a higher level. What the hell am I doing here? Your body gets used to it, is what I'm trying to say. Now, it's during this time where you're getting used to it and you're really getting to know the different people on your expedition who are from all over the world and all that kind of stuff. And there's a real camaraderie that's, that comes to people who are living at, at, for a while down at base camp. But while this is happening, some of the Sherpas and some of the different expedition leaders are heading farther up the mountain and they're setting ropes and they're setting lines that will be followed by everybody else in the expedition. You want to follow a very specific path. And the first part of your expedition goes up a thing called a Kumbu or a Kumba. I can never say it correctly. It's the Kumba Icefall. And essentially what this is, is you're going up a glacier at this point. And the glacier changes rapidly. So there are areas where you're hiking up and there may be a crack next to you. And that crack goes down hundreds and hundreds of feet down into ice. You don't want to slip up. So you want to follow these lines that these experts have laid out for you to the best of their ability. Because even them, they don't know, you know, you could be climbing over an area and it's snowy and you think it's safe, but there could be a big pit under there. It's a very dangerous area. This is where a lot of accidents happen in this very, this very first part of Mount Everest. So they'll go out and lay these different tracks. And like I said before, there's these big pits and ice can break off. There's been numerous people who have died from these giant towers of ice on the glacier. And you're just innocently climbing by it. And with absolutely no warning, it collapses on top of you. One guy got crushed by like a 30 story ice chunk. That sucks. That totally sucks. So it's extremely dangerous. There's no guarantees that you're going to come back from this trip. In fact, as insane as it is, about one out of every 10 people die trying to make it to the summit or descending from the summit of Mount Everest. That statistic has actually been lowered over time. Uh, If you go back in history, it was one in four. It was one in six. I mean, people were dying left and right trying to go up this thing. So as we've gotten better equipment, better jackets, you know, better things like that, we've lessened how many, the percentage of people that will die. But they make no mistake about it. This mountain will kill you in so many different ways. So anyway, again, they're going through the, the Kumbu or whatever it's called, the ice fall, this glacier. And there can be these giant, giant, these giant crevasses. That's what they call them on all the things that I watched and read about the comb crevasses i thought they were crevices i don't know i'm just a yankee doodle from new jersey i don't know these uh terms apparently but they call them crevasses so these huge crevasses you have to you have to go over and they are absolutely treacherous 
you are going on ladders that are extending over these gigantic crevasses. And they look so ridiculously dangerous. You're on a freaking ladder, like crawling over a ladder. And below you is a pit where you will undoubtedly die if you fall off the side of it. I think anybody who's even climbed a ladder to do some painting on their house or for whatever reason to clean windows, if you've even gone up a ladder a story or too high, it is freaky, dude. If you fall, you know that you're going to get severely hurt, break a leg. When you're doing this on Mount Everest, you're done. You're donezy. You're not going to come back from this kind of a fall. So they do these incredibly dangerous uh, uh, walks over over ladders and up these steep uh, hills and, and just uh, sheer ice cliffs and things like that. It's, it's, it's insane what you're doing right off the bat. Many, many, many Sherpas and expedition leaders have died setting the lines uh, for these various expeditions. To reduce the hazard, a lot of time what climbers will do is they'll actually begin their ascent well before dawn. The reason they are leaving so early in the morning when visibility is lower, you know, as, as dawn is rising, the sun, is because the freezing temperatures are actually still keeping the ice blocks, the glacier, glued together. As the sun hits it, it becomes... It, it can melt a little bit, become more loose, more mushy, and chunks are more likely to fall off and send you falling to your poor, piss-ass death. So they tend to go a little more early in the morning to try to get through this area. And it's, like I said before, you're just starting from base camp, and you have to go through this treacherous area to get to Camp 1. Camp 1 is located at 19,900 feet. So you've arrived at Camp 1. Okay, you hang out here for another few days, you get acclimatized to another few thousand feet. Now you want to take off to Camp 2. Camp 2 is much more, uh, the, the route to it is much more of a snowy ascent. There's not the constant danger of the glacier and the pits and the falls. It's a little bit more of a gentle part of the hike. It's probably the easiest part of the hike. There is this really interesting area known as the Valley of Silence. Now, the reason it gets this name is because the way the mountain is positioned, the wind actually becomes virtually non-existent. It's silent. Now, as you're going up the mountain base camp and going up towards the top, it gets windier and windier. It's, it's extreme wind. You're on the world's tallest mountain. It's an incredibly windy place. You get used to wind just howling in your ears, howling through your tent at night. And now you come to this area where you can hear a pin drop. It is so quiet. And a lot of people find that eerie. They find it uh, almost a spiritual experience. Some people find it unnerving. Everybody's experience is a little different, but there's just this area called the Valley of Silence. After you get through there, you're pretty much up to Camp 2. Camp 2 is located at 21,300 feet. From this point that you will climb on fixed ropes until you get up to Camp 3, which is located on a small ledge at about 24,500 feet. Now, this is kind of crazy, but it's only another 2,000 feet that you have to get to get to Camp 4. This is starting to become the more difficult area, and you got to remember it's getting harder and harder to breathe. It doesn't matter how used to the thin air that you've got. At this point, the higher you go, the human body is not designed to take in the lack of oxygen that is in the air. So it gets more and more difficult. It doesn't matter if you're an amazing climber 
or you're a novice, it is going to get more difficult. It's just human physiology. It's just not able to take in the, the lack of oxygen. So you eventually reach Camp 4, which is known as the South Coal. Now, now is when you enter into a very, very dangerous area on your ascent of Mount Everest. It is called the Death Zone. And climbers typically only have about a maximum of two to three days that they can endure at this altitude before they have to either make a summit bid or they have to descend back down to base camp. And the reason why this is, is they call it the death zone because oxygen is so incredibly thin above this point that you're not going to make it for more than 48 hours guaranteed you will not make it for more than 48 hours without supplemental oxygen. You have to bring oxygen tanks with you. So you got to haul these things up this incredible climb. Just to get up to this point of, of Camp 4 and ready to make a bid for the summit, you have to bring oxygen tanks with you. And there are some people who have done it without the supplemental oxygen. It's extremely dangerous. It is not recommended at all unless you are an expert. And even the experts generally will bring oxygen with them just in case they start to uh, succumb to the various things that can happen. The number one thing that starts to happen to you is a thing called hypoxia. Now, I've talked about this when I've done the MH370 uh, podcast, which are the, is the plane that disappeared, the Malaysian flights, uh, the Malaysian Airways plane that disappeared. It's possible that they suffered from hypoxia on board that flight. Now, hypoxia is essentially a thing that when your brain has a lack of oxygen, you essentially start to hallucinate and shut down and various body functions become very difficult. And you don't think straight. You can make very stupid decisions. Uh, they say that just lifting your legs and keeping yourself walking every step becomes tough. When you see someone going like three, four steps and then having to stop and take breaths and then take another four or five steps, that's like, you think about it, that's not very far to have to stop and you're out of breath and take steps. And you, if you have a lack of oxygen, you can make some really dumb decisions and this is a life or death scenario. So almost everybody brings extra oxygen. And at this point above camp four heading towards the summit, you put on your oxygen tank and you breathe it in. You can take it off. You can take off the oxygen and breathe the air. It's not like you're going to immediately just fall off a cliff because you've taken off your oxygen. It takes a little time for these hypoxia or the, the, the thin air altitude. You can get altitude sickness, start puking and stuff. It takes a little bit for this to uh, affect your body. So a lot of people, when they get to the summit, they take pictures and they don't have their oxygen on because it would look stupid to have an oxygen mask on when you're on top of the world. And generally, when you get to Camp 4, your expedition leader, or if you're just a crazy good climber, you will have to make the decision that if there's clear weather and there's low winds... These are absolutely critical factors in deciding whether you should make it up, make an attempt up to the summit or you should descend. And like I've mentioned many times, it is not to be taken lightly because you make the wrong decision. You're dead and you cannot move any longer. You're too exhausted. You've run out of oxygen, which is a very common occurrence. People do not bring enough oxygen or they use it quicker than they thought because they're so exhausted. You're, like, <gasps> you're, you know, you're really, really struggling and you burn through all your oxygen tanks. Well, 
part of the thing about Mount Everest is not just getting to the summit, but also getting back down. You have to have enough energy, enough stamina to make it back down. Because if you make it to the top and you die going back down, well, I mean, it's yeah, you may have had a few minutes of glory, but then you're dead. So people always say it's not just making it to the summit of Mount Everest. It's completing the entire climb. It's making to the top and getting back down alive and safely. Then you've truly conquered the mountain. And many, many people make this mistake where they are just too exhausted or they see the summit. They say, I'm there. I can make it. I'm going to get there. And they start to ignore the different weather conditions or ignore how exhausted they are or ignore the lack of oxygen that they have left. And these are critical errors. These are absolutely critical errors. In fact, one of the most major things about getting to the summit is they recommend that there's around a 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. turnaround time. This is well established within the climbing community. You leave camp four to get to the summit, oftentimes around midnight or 2 a.m. You leave very early in the morning and you start at very, very in the middle of the night, essentially, to try to time it so that you are getting to the summit 6 a.m., 8 a.m., 10 a.m., 12, when obviously light has come back and the conditions are better and it's daytime and you can see. Because if you start too late towards the summit, say you wait until it's daylight and then you're like, okay, now I'm going to make my ascension. It's very difficult, the last part of it, because of the lack of oxygen and it's very steep. And there's a thing called Hillary's Step. Hillary's step is essentially a very thin cliff area. And you are on top of the mountain, right heading towards the peak. On one side is Tibet. On one side is Nepal. I mean, there's not, it's not a huge area. It's very small. In fact, it is almost um, like single line. You know, there's not... It's not like a, a big area where a bunch of different people, there's, you know, one side going up, one side going down. You're, it's like single file, you know, it's a very small area on top of this mountain. And then you've got to get through this treacherous part called Hillary's Step. And uh, once you get over that, you're more or less at the summit at that point. And like I said, again, there's that turnaround time, that special time around 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. that you should be getting your ass turned around and heading back down. So you get to the top, you take your pictures, you high-five each other, you congratulate each other, you take in this amazing view that so few people on Earth have ever experienced. You literally are on top of the world. In fact, you are so high up in the Earth's atmosphere that you are actually entering the stratosphere. The stratosphere is the next level of the atmosphere above the one we live on. I don't know what the one we live on is called, who cares, whatever, so what, but you're on the stratosphere. You're on the next one up. And humans aren't designed to be there, like we've said before. In fact, you're so high that you're at uh, commercial airplane altitude, like like where commercial planes are flying at, you know, 30,000 feet. That's where you're standing. We're not designed to be there. So if you did not turn around by a certain time, your chances of living decrease at an incredible, incredible rate. You want to be heading back down the mountain by 2 o'clock at the latest to give yourself enough time to descend before uh, darkness can set in because darkness at those altitudes is a killer. If you can't see where you're going heading back down this mountain, it's a done deal. Not only do you have an extremely limited time because of the oxygen, 
And this is if you are an expert climber. You have a limited amount of time to get back down. If you're just Joe Schmo, who's trained and does it, you have your oxygen masks, and all the experts also as well generally have the oxygen masks because it's a smart thing to do. If you're running out of oxygen because you didn't bring enough and you're hanging out there too long, you're in big trouble. So there's a lot of different things that can screw you up. So you want to get your ass heading back down quickly. If you are heading back down 3 p.m., 4 p.m., 5 p.m., a lot of deaths have occurred during this time frame. You you may have overexerted yourself getting to the top and you want to enjoy it long, you know, stay there an hour or whatever. Unfortunately, that's a really stupid decision. And uh, some people have done it, sure, but it's generally a very bad decision. You want to get your ass heading back down to Camp 4. In fact, the average time that people spend at the summit is less than a half hour. Now, the summit of Everest has been described as the size of a dining room table. So it's not a very big area, the very, very tippy top. It's usually covered in snow. Sometimes the rock is exposed. Uh, Sometimes the snow can be over waist deep. Other times it's not at all. Conditions vary... Uh, considerably at the top of the world. And uh, this is another absolutely crazy thing. Below the summit, there is an area actually known as Rainbow Valley. And you go, oh, that sounds so pretty. I bet you see just amazing rainbows from this area. And that's probably why they called it that, this natural area. No, actually, it's called the Rainbow Valley because it's filled with dead bodies of people that have totally fallen off the side of that mountain and the reason why it's called rainbow is because people wear these different colored jackets as they are climbing up the mountain. There's red ones, yellow ones, green ones, blue ones. And thus, that's why they call it Rainbow Valley. All these dead people in their jackets still. Now, if you didn't think that going up in the death zone and the summit was dangerous... Listen to this stat. This is insane. The debilitating effects of the death zone are so great that it takes most climbers about 12 hours to walk the distance of about one mile from Camp 4 to the summit. This is no joke. This is no joke. Achieving even this level of performance requires prolonged altitude acclimatization, which takes about 40 to 60 days for a typical expedition. A sea-level dweller exposed to the atmospheric conditions at 29,000 feet, without proper means of getting used to the thin air, will likely lose consciousness in two to three minutes. That's it. One of the other things that makes climbing Mount Everest so incredibly dangerous is that if you are injured or you are starting to lose your, as they say, you know, too exhausted or losing your confidence, whatever it may be, You are essentially on your own. You might as well be on the moon, people say, because you can't be rescued. You truly are on your own, even though you have your Sherpas or an expedition leader that may be with you. You're on your own. You really are. Because helicopters can't fly to this elevation. They can't. The air is too thin. They can't get the lift. They crash. They can't can't do it. It's impossible. Obviously, airplanes aren't going there. You're on cliff sides, mountain side. That's not going. Uh, there's no way for anybody to get to you. That's how unforgiving this terrain is. At these high altitudes, it is exhausting just to take steps and to breathe properly. Trying to carry someone or drag somebody 
or even putting them on like a sled, which you don't have, but like trying to like slide them down the mountain. It's exhausting. And they're going to leave you where you fall. It's a sad sort of thing. And you think to yourself, why, what, like, why would anybody leave you behind? You know, like drag my ass, help me do something. But you don't understand until you're there is what everybody says. The conditions that you, you can't, you simply cannot. People have had to leave friends, wives, husbands, loved ones behind to save themselves. Because if you decide to try to help this person, there is an extremely high chance that now you're going to become so exhausted or you're going to run out of oxygen. You're not going to be able to save this person. And now you're another casualty. A lot of times what happens is people get so cold and they're so exhausted that they start to just collapse. Their body just, it literally is giving up. They could have frostbite symptoms coming on, which your your nose can turn black, your fingers. Uh, you can start to lose control of your arms because you're so cold and it's painful and you just, your body essentially gives up. You start to go into this like delusional state and you could just stop. You know, just fall over. I'm just going to take a rest here. They always say when climbing Mount Everest, it is very important to never stop. Whether you're uh, climbing to the next camp level or you're descending to a next camp level, do not stop. Okay, it's fine to stop for a breather here and there. Sure, it's a very difficult thing to do. But if you're becoming unconscious or it's obvious that you're extremely fatigued, your team members will try to push you to keep going, keep going. Do not sit down. Do not take a rest. Some people are like, I'm just going to lay here and like, I want to sleep for a few minutes. Dude, that's a death sentence. Don't do it. Get your ass up. Keep moving. It's the number one rule of Mount Everest is keep moving because if you stop, you're done. Most of the people who die on the mountain are left on the mountain. And it's kind of a, a creepy thing to think about because it's it's extremely hard to bring a body down, like I said, for all those various reasons that I mentioned. Even if you go up with the intent of bringing a body down, which has happened numerous times, people have gone up to try to bring down uh, somebody who perished on the mountain. And they've gone up on, a, on an expedition specifically to get to the body and try to bring it back down. And they still can't. Because the conditions become overwhelming for them. It's too strenuous. And they have to abandon it. So many, 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 many times. People are left exactly where they've fallen. And some of these people have actually become landmarks. And I know this, it just, like I said, it sounds so weird to think that a dead corpse could become a landmark. When most of these people, you're you're trying to conquer something. You're trying to go up Mount Everest and achieve this triumph, you know, this amazing accomplishment. And you're hiking past dead bodies, like, littered around you. And that's uh, it's just a really strange concept. Where else in the world are you going to walk past, like, preserved dead bodies, like, covered in snow and their boots sticking out or whatever it may be? But this is a very, this is a thing... It's a very real reality on Mount Everest. This is something that you have to, you, you know about it. Nobody hikes up there and knows they're not going to walk past and see a body somewhere. You know it. You know what's going to happen. And like I said, some of these people, these dead people have become landmarks in certain areas where you know, oh, I've hit this area because I passed that dead guy. Yeah, he died uh, you know, eight years ago there and he's still there. And 
that's just the harsh reality of the mountain. Essentially, it will become your graveyard if you die there. It's an open graveyard. And it's been very hard for people. Uh, you hear these stories about people who've had to leave people behind because they've lost consciousness. They're still breathing and you're trying to talk to them, but you just can't get them up. And you know you're running out of time and you got to get back down the mountain. You're come on and you just can't, you just can't get them up in some, some cases. And when you leave that person, it's, uh, I can't even imagine what it would feel like to, to leave somebody on a mountain knowing that you're probably the last person that's ever going to see them alive. You know, that's, it's, that's, uh, it's crazy. I can't imagine it. So, you know, on one hand, you've got this, uh, amazing jubilant feeling you must have of achieving this dream and getting to the summit. And like I said, most people make it. It's about one out of every 10 that uh, dies on the mountain. So most people have the, a great experience. It could be exhausting. Uh, you know, you could get frostbite or whatever, but you live to tell the tale. Amazing achievement. Some people, you know, just they don't make it. And it can become a real tragedy uh, as well as a, a good experience. So this next segment of the show, I'm actually going to tell you about some pretty sad cases of people who have passed away on the mountain. And I have this morbid sort of fascination with learning about how intense this mountain can be and, and how hard this climb is. So we're going to talk about different individuals that have passed on and the different circumstances of what killed them and what was going on with the expedition with them. So if you're faint of heart and you don't like some of the more gloomy stuff, I mean, I guess you could turn it off. So this next segment, we're going to talk about the life and death and some of these crazy tragedies and things that have happened on the mountainside and the bodies and people that still remain there today. Let us first begin with one of the more famous ones, right back from the beginning, George Mallory. Take yourself back to 1921. That was when the first Renaissance expedition uh, went up Mount Everest and started mapping it and figuring out a way to go up. They didn't even try to reach the summit. As I said, this was a Renaissance uh, one to just try and figure out what to do. A guy named George Mallory was part of this expedition with a bunch of other people. They came back in 1922 to begin their first attempt. There ended up being an avalanche that killed eight Sherpas, and these are listed as some of the very first uh, deaths, in fact, the, the first deaths um, from uh, expeditions going up to the top to reach the summit. So we got eight deaths right off the bat. Go forward a couple years, 1924, uh, Mallory and Irvine. These are two uh, British guys, the ones that were involved in the previous couple years there. And they're like, you know what? We're going to go back. We're going to get there. People are like, why Why do you want to go to the top of this mountain? Like, what is drawing you there? Why are you doing this? And the very famous answer was, because it's there. And that's what everybody who climbs Mount Everest uses that as like a joke when people ask him that question. Like, why do you want to do it? Because it's there, you know? It's, that's it. It's simple. 
So basically, Mallory and these other guys, they head up, they try to get to the top again, and they run into all kinds of problems. There's this extreme cold, there's this terrible wind, there's exhaustion, refusal of some of the Sherpas to go with them any farther. So they're running into all kinds of problems, and they are trying to go up the north side of Everest. So basically, everybody drops off this expedition except for the last two guys, uh, and one of them being Mallory. And he continues up to uh, almost the summit, and it is nobody knows for sure. I mean, we're talking 1924 here. We don't have the modern technology and uh, things like that that they use nowadays to keep track of where uh, climbers are. So nobody's really exactly sure where he was and if he did, in fact, summit. But what they do know is that he never came back down. It's believed that Mallory may have slipped and suffered a severe uh, rope jerk injury uh, to his waist section. His buddy Irvine, who had been going with him, uh, it's believed that he probably died from cold and possibly the injuries from his fall and his injury as well. So basically, all hell breaks loose for these last two guys who are going up to the top of the mountain. So they never make it back, and Mallory becomes one of the most famous cases um, because his body ends up being found. Now, in 1979, remember, this was 1924, originally we're talking. In 1979, climber Wang Hoang of China revealed to a climbing leader of a Japanese expedition that in 1975, while taking a stroll from the mapped-out route, he had discovered an English person dead. Uh, This was roughly below the site of the fellow that Mallory was with named Irvine, where his ice axe was discovered in 1933. However, Wang was killed in an avalanche the next day and could provide no additional details. Are you kidding me? That sucks! It wasn't until 1999 that a guy named Conrad Anker of the Mallory and Irvine Research Expedition found Mallory's body in the predicted area near the old area where the Chinese guy had said that he found him. So, or 1924, the guy dies on top of the mountain. They don't find him until 1999. That's utterly ridiculous. So nobody knows for sure whether they actually reached the summit or not. And these two gentlemen are not credited with reaching the summit. Uh, the two people who are actually credited with them, I forget their names, but they did it in 1953. So it took a long time for people to successfully get up this mountain. So, uh, yeah, Mallory, his body was found and it was very well mummified. You can see it online. You can find pictures of it. And he has this, you know, primitive climbing gear on because this is the 1920s. And his skin, it's, it looks rubbery and it's sunken in and stuff. And I don't think you see his face in the picture, I forget. But he's sort of like falling over on his stomach. And uh, yeah, it's just kind of like Skeletor in this like old gear. And it's just kind of crazy that it's just been sitting up there for that long. And it's never rotted or anything. Because people have said that being on the side of Mount Everest is a lot like being in a desert. Even though there's snow and ice uh, the sun beats down on you and the cold conditions and the wind and stuff. It can mummify bodies really quickly. So that's why a lot of these people still look pretty creepy that are still up there. And they're not just like, you know, there's just skin and bone. Like, well, there's not just bones left. There's still the skin on there and everything and hair and stuff on a lot of these people. And kind of freaky, kind of freaky stuff. So Mallory, one of the first... Uh, First guys to really die on the mountain, and it took them like decades and decades to find his body.
let's fast forward quite a bit to 1979. This is the case of Hanalor Schmatz. <laughs> I'm going to mispronounce everybody's names. You guys know I can't do it, so it's not a surprise. But this is a pretty infamous case, actually. This one uh, was pretty haunting for quite a few reasons. It was October 2nd, 1979, and she made a successful summit. She got to the top, but for reasons that remain unclear, she died of exhaustion about 100 meters short of reaching Camp 4. So she's heading back down. Camp 4, you're still, you're, Camp 4 is when you finally get below that death zone. So it could have been exhaustion, different things that she's fighting, high altitude sickness, who knows what's going on. But for years, any climber that was attempting the southern route would see her body sitting in a leaning back crouched position with her backpack on and her eyes open and her brown hair blowing in the wind. Despite being so incredibly exposed and so visible on, along this well-trodden area of the climbing route, rescue operations were virtually suicidal within the death zone. So... Yeah, she's right there. You're just cruising by her, and you see her, and with her eyes open, and she must have just froze right in that position, just wherever she was at that last minute with her eyes open is where she was. It's a really creepy image, um, I would think, climbing past this poor woman who, who didn't make it back down. So in 1984, a couple guys decided that they were going to try to do something about it. She's been sitting up there for, what, a good five years or so, and it's it's time something needs to be done. This this is kind of gross going right past this poor woman. Nobody deserves to be that. That's how they viewed it, you know? But everybody was like, oh, it's a death mission. Don't do it. It's not worth the risk, blah, blah, blah. So a Nepalese police inspector and uh, a Sherpa decided that they were going to try to recover her body. And yeah, they both fell to their deaths. I know, right? Come on. These guys are just trying to help out, doing what they think is the right thing to do. And, uh, yeah, they died as a result. Uh, it wasn't until high winds finally blew her body over the ridge, the area where she was at, and she plummeted somewhere down the mountain. Nobody knows exactly, but she's not there anymore. So, yeah, this poor woman died, and then we had two guys trying to uh, recover her body, and they also died as a result of their, not a rescue operation, but I guess a recovery operation. And they died as well. So all three people remain down somewhere on the mountain. Let's fast forward to 2006. We're going to jump around a little here. This is not going to go exactly in order. But this is a very, very famous case. This is an English mountaineer by the name of David Sharp. Now, this was Sharp's third time trying to summit the mountain. And his death resulted in a huge international controversy. The controversy is about, should you help a climber who is in need of medical aid or rescue? And that sparked this gigantic international debate. Because a lot of people say, if you see someone who's incapacitated, even if they're still breathing, there's no hope for them. They're gone. You can't rescue them up in the death zone it's impossible. If they're freezing to death, they have frostbite, they're done. You know, that's just sort of like the rule of the mountain. But a lot of other people are like, no, you should definitely try to help people get back down. You should abandon your summit. But unfortunately, a lot of different things come into this. You're paying $50,000, $55,000, whatever. You may have saved up your whole life for this dream, this one chance to make it to the summit. 
and then you see some person who's in bad shape as you're climbing up and you've spent the last two months getting your ass all the way up to the summit. Some people don't want to help that person. You go, ah, too bad, too sad. I've spent all this time, money is my dream. I'm getting to the top. They didn't make it. I'm so sorry. I'm getting to the top and we'll walk right past them. Some people uh, decide to help them. I don't know what's right or wrong. I've never been up there. I can barely climb out of bed. So I don't know, <laughs> you know, what's exactly the, the, the right thing to do. But I guess that depends on the individual. But this case sparked this massive controversy. So here's here's what happened to poor David Sharp. David Sharp was attempting to climb the mountain without the help of a Sherpa or anything like that. So he was going unguided. He was basically going at it alone. And this is his third time. And I believe his second try, he lost toes and or fingers. I forget. I think he did lose some toes, though. So he had like severe frostbite and had to turn back. So he's desperately trying to conquer Mount Everest. He had done uh, Mount Kilimanjaro and all these other very various high peaks around Earth. And he needed to get Everest done. He had to do it. So... But he's had severe trouble doing it before, like amputee kind of trouble getting up there. So he's on his way up there, unguided, without the help of any Sherpas, and he's going up the north face. Sharp was considered an extremely talented climber by all means, and several other expeditions and climbers saw him throughout the day. Different people saw him all along their ascent. Some people saw him on their way back down. So he was spotted, and people said that he seemed in good spirits. And some of the guys said they knew him and knew that he was a experienced guy and that he would turn back if he needed to, like he had done on previous trips. So it doesn't seem like anybody really thought too much of it. However, something happened to him. Nobody knows if he reached the summit or not, but at some point... Either due to frostbite or his ran out of oxygen or some people even say that his oxygen tank froze, which would suck. Something happened to him and he decided to seek shelter in a small little cave area on the north face. Now this area, this cave is also famously known as Green Boots Cave. It's actually a landmark. And that's how insane all these bodies 200 250 bodies that are on mount everest they some of them have actually become landmarks for the other climbers to know how far they're at yeah you've got your camp three your camp fours things like that but also some of these dead corpses you're like oh yeah that's green boots cave everybody knows how far they are now from the summit because of these landmarks which are just dead people it's a whole nother world up there for sure so sharp had to take shelter in green boots cave and at the time, Green Boots was like laying there, also dead, like right near him. And we'll get to Green Boots next. But so David Sharp climbs into the cave and he sits down in a crouching position. So he's got his knees up and he's sort of got his arms out extended around his knees, almost like a hut, like huddling himself in for warmth. And his head sort of crouched down a little bit. Like he was definitely trying to get warm, I think one can assume. Ultimately, Sharp died beneath that rock overhang. That is at about 27,887 feet. So that is uh, definitely up there in the death zone. The first climbers to actually encounter Sharp in this position, this crouch position, was on the early morning of May 15th, 2006. And uh, 
this is insane. They saw him there. Uh, some of them didn't even notice him. There was definitely a whole bunch because it was like when I say real early in the morning, it was like just past midnight. They had to start the climb really, really early. So a lot of them didn't even see them. And some of them may have and just thought it was another dead body on Everest. And also some of them thought that he was either dead or he was beyond help. It's because such an extreme altitude, it was ridiculous to attempt a rescue. So it is estimated that around 40 climbers saw him either on their ascent on, or on their descent and uh, didn't do anything to help him. There was one group of climbers that did decide they wanted to try to help Sharp. They climbed down in the overhang where he was at and got to him and tried to talk to him. And they saw and saw that he was breathing very shallow, that he was pretty much beyond the point of help. And when they tried to talk to him, he was able to say that his name was David Sharp. So what they ended up doing, because they didn't have a lot of options, was they decided to pull him out into the sunlight in hopes that maybe it would warm him a little bit. And when they dragged him, and when I say dragged him, pulled him out of the cave, he did not move. That's how frozen he was, that he was still in that crouching, kneeling position. As And they pulled him out as if he was like a piece of ice, like a rock, just like solid. And put him out in the sun in hopes that maybe by some grace of God that he would be able to wake up or get more energy and warm up or something. But it didn't work. So he ended up passing away. And uh, there's just people. This case got huge because there was a guy who was one of like the first double amputee to uh, to climb Mount Everest. And his expedition went by sharp as well. And they chose not to help him. And everybody in the whole climbing community started weighing in on it. And there were TV shows and debates. And became definitely a hotbed issue for a while, uh, especially surrounding Mount Everest on to help people or not to help people in need. And uh, that was mostly... Um, because of David Sharp's death in 2006 that uh, uh, kick-started that whole debate. Green Boots Cave, right? That's this little cave that this guy died in. And he's known as Green Boots because he has the distinctive bright green boots that he was wearing. And, uh, yeah, it's just, he just became a landmark for climbers. And But his real name was, this is going to be a hard one to say, Teswang Paljor, Paljor, something like that. Uh, but most of the people only know him as Green Boots. For nearly 20 years, his body was located not far from Mount Everest Summit and served as a grim trail marker for those seeking to conquer the world's highest mountain from its north face. Now, a person named Noel Hanna is an adventurer who has summited Everest seven times, and this person says... I would say that really everybody, especially those climbing on the north side, knows about green boots or has read about green boots or has heard somebody else talking about green boots. I would say about 80% of people take a rest at the shelter where green boots is, and it's hard to miss a person lying there. Tess Wang Palor, or we'll just call him green boots because that's a lot easier for me to say. He was making his attempt on May 10th, 1996, which turned out to be one of the most tragic days ever on Mount Everest. And we'll get to some of the other people who lost their lives um, on that day. 
and his group was called the Indo-Tibetan Border Police Expedition. So these were police officers and whatnot. It's believed that they got into a blizzard around Camp 4, and three out of the six members decided to retreat and turn back down the mountain. However, the other three guys decided, hey, we are going to make it to the top. The three climbers radioed to their expedition leader that they had arrived at the summit. Uh, Their base camp was jubilant. They got excited. They're like, woo, we did it. And they were totally amped. You know how a lot of times these people who summit the mountain, they bring flags or something that's significant to them, a photo or whatever it may be that they'll jam into the snow there at the summit to leave a memento that, you know, I've been here and these guys did such. However, there was really no other flags or anything else around them. So the question is, did they really reach the summit? Most people believe they didn't because if they had reached the summit, they would have seen other people that on that very day were also at the top and they would have seen the collection of flags and things that were left behind by people conquering the mountain. They didn't see any of that. So they were in pretty bad conditions. Uh, A blizzard had sort of come through, as I said uh, before, leading other people to go back. And then they had a break, but there was uh, clouds rolling in and their view was obscured of most of the mountain, which left them disoriented. So, yeah, that kind of sucks. But, I mean, I guess in their eyes, they were like, we made it. But so they decided to come back down. Right. And then this is where trouble happens. Unfortunately, none of the three men make it back down the mountain. And I'm not really sure where the other two guys uh, fell, but the most famous one, again, as I've said numerous times, is Green Boots. And he saw this little cave that David Sharp saw 10 years later. Because, again, Green Boots died in 1996, and then David Sharp died in the same cave in 2006. He saw a little overhang. And you can o- I can only imagine being absolutely frozen, exhausted, winds howling, the conditions were deteriorating into a full-blown storm uh, along his, upon his descent. It's like being in another planet. He might as well be placed on, like, Mars in a storm or Jupiter. I don't think, Can you stand on Jupiter? Is it a gas planet? I don't even know. He, he's in a shitty place, the moon, whatever you want to call it, and it's windy and it's terrible. And I I can't imagine what that would be like. And his body, uh, his final moment, frozen in time, his his final moments, death. He's just sort of laid out in kind of a fetal position laying there. Like he just sort of laid over like he was going to go to bed and never moved again. You can look up pictures on Google and see pictures. Just green boots is like all you have to write. Green boots cave comes right up. And also uh, David Sharp, you can see pictures of him crouched. And uh, a lot of these people were talking about Mallory. You can see pictures of him there. And uh, yeah, so Green Boots became a landmark. And actually, interestingly to note, he was up there. That was in 1996 that he died in that storm and on the side of the mountain. It wasn't until 2014 that his body just disappeared. Where did it go? Uh, People don't know if somebody... Uh, buried him or if somebody perhaps pushed him off the side or maybe just wind conditions and the atmosphere up there you know extreme winds can go up there 100 mile per hour winds maybe somehow blew his body off even though he was kind of in a little bit of a protected area under this ridge 
it's hard to say. And if somebody did bury him, they didn't take credit for it. They never said anything. Nobody really knows what happened to him. But for some reason in 2014, Green Boots disappeared. So while Green Boots and his expedition, three of them died on the north side of the mountain on May 10th, 1996, in a storm. On the south side, all kinds of craziness was happening as well. And this is probably, this story is probably the most well-documented story of any of the Everest disasters. You can go onto YouTube and search and find, like, five or six documentaries explaining what happened uh, the 1996 uh, Southside disaster. So I'm just going to sort of rush through it. Like I said, you can watch those documentaries and learn every little detail about what happened. But I, I watched every single documentary I could find about it and every interview. And it is absolutely amazing what these people went through. So on the South side, it's the more popular side. And there are a lot of teams attempting to summit during this brief two to three week window, something like that. You know, it's a very short amount of time. You can get to the top as we discussed earlier in the podcast. And so that can sometimes create bottlenecking. And it's hard to imagine that on the top of the mountain, bottlenecking can occur and traffic, but it can, because some of these areas, especially near the summit can be very narrow. So, uh, yeah, this is essentially what happened. Uh, this guy named Rob Hall, he was a very, very experienced uh, guide and leader. He was taking his team called Adventure Consulting up to the top of the mountain. And he was going up and everybody seemed to be doing fairly good. And what they ended up happening was they got to this area uh, before Hillary Step, which is one of the last major climbs before reaching the summit. And they started to get all... All these climbers are getting backed up and there's rows of people and everyone's hanging around and waiting and for people to get through this narrow area. And there was confusion because ropes hadn't been laid out and certain Sherpas were supposed to have gone up and done it before, but they didn't. So now they had to wait like 45 minutes to an hour for ropes and safety lines to be set into the snow and ice. So there's confusion happening here. It's not going quite to plan, and nobody's really sure what's happening. But you just have to wait. And as we discussed earlier, the number one rule kind of in the mountain is to always keep moving. It's not safe to stop. You lose time, you lose heat, all sorts of things. But that's exactly what we have here. We have climbers waiting upwards of an hour to longer than an hour to get through certain tight areas. And that's probably got to be frustrating because people are like, I, this is my day to make it to the summit and I am stuck in a human traffic jam. Like, move it, you bastards. I bet is what they're yeah, probably like, move it, bastards. I would be saying if I was one of them. That's so stupid, Phil. One of the members of Rob Hall's team named uh, Beck Weathers, he starts to get, like, he starts to go blind, right? He starts to lose his vision. And he had had surgery on his eyes, I forget, a few years before, something like that. And he said to Rob Hall, he's like, dude, I don't think I can, I don't think I can keep going. Rob Hall's like, what's going on? He's like, I'm losing my vision. 
Um, everything's blurry. Like I just, I can't continue. Like even he knew it was, if he tried any harder, that's a suicide mission. He's just not going to make it. So he sat down in the snow and, uh, kind of bumming obviously, because this guy wanted to get, um, he wanted to get to the seven summits of the, of the earth. You know, I think we mentioned this before, but the seven summits on each continent, the tallest one and Everest was his last one. That was the big kahuna he saved for last. And he realized that his dream was going to, it wasn't going to materialize, but he was a smart enough climber to know you can't see that's a death wish. You're dead. So he knows that he needs to, to start to go back down. So he talks it over with Rob Hall and Rob Hall's like, look, sit here, try to recover your vision, take your oxygen, just relax, get your energy back. I'm going to continue to the summit. And when I get there, I'm going to return and I'm going to get you on my way back. Do not leave this spot. I will come back for you. And Beckweathers had 100% confidence that Rob Hall would be back. Little did he know he would never return. Rob Hall's uh, expedition team, Adventure Consultants, had sort of formed a relationship uh, with another expedition called Mountain Madness. Mountain Madness, uh, the lead climbing guide for this, was his name was Scott Fisher. Now, Scott Fisher was known to be one of those larger-than-life personalities. You know, when you met him, he, you liked him. He could be a little rough around the edges, but he was funny. And he just really seemed to attract people. And he was good at motivating people. And he just had this real go get em kind of kind of wild stallion kind of a uh, persona to him, which is, again, what attracted people to him. And he had started up his own expedition company, oftentimes kind of rivaled with Rob Hall's uh, teams. And because it was a company to these guys, you know, as well as. That you know they've they've gotten to Mount Everest before the the peak and the summit, but it was also kind of a, it was a company. These people, there's a lot of money to be made doing this, and him and Rob Hall had sort of talked during this expedition that hey, we got a lot of people going up. We're going to be summoning the same day. Let's sort of work together with our Sherpas and stuff, and it'll make it easier on both of our teams. You know, the more we have working together, the easier it is. So. They sort of formed this relationship as they were going their teams up the mountain. They were heading up together. And what ended up happening was somebody on Scott Fisher's team ended up getting uh, like an altitude sickness or they were like coughing up like blood. I forget what it was now. Is it the Salibra, whatever it is? I'm, I forget what it is, but yeah, it's not good. So this poor guy, you know, he's never going to make it. And I believe this was around Camp 2 on the south side. So he knows that he has to turn back. And he was a very good friend of Scott Fisher. So Scott Fisher took it upon himself to return his friend down to base camp. Took him back down to base camp. And instead of being like, oh, you know, I just climbed thousands and thousands of feet and then descended thousands and thousands of feet on the world's largest mountain. He's like, I'm going to get back up there and catch up with my team. So he starts hauling ass to get back up to them without taking the proper rest that he should have. Now, he's a very accomplished climber, and everybody was like, you know what? He knows his own limits. He's not one of those people that's going to do something stupid. He knows his own limits, even though he's got this big ego and personality. 
and he hiked all the way back up and he caught up basically with everybody um, towards the end. But he was not giving himself time to sleep. He would get to like a certain camp, call in with them above and be like, I'll be there with you tomorrow. And they all said he just sounded a little bit funny. And they were like, he seems like he's really pushing himself, you know, like not not following any of his advice or any of the things that people say you should do proper instruction of going up the mountain and giving your body time to rest and reacclimate at the different altitudes and things like that. He's just hauling ass trying to catch back up. And so he's fallen behind, but now let's get to the rest of the people who are now up around, um, up now around near the summit. And what had happened is actually the night before they tried to summit, there was a really bad storm and it was wind was whipping and nobody could sleep. And everybody said it was just awful conditions. So everyone got little to any sleep. And then Rob Hall and his team woke everybody up that morning at like midnight or whatever. It was like, we got to get going, heading towards the summit. This is where we get to the part where a guy, that guy named Beck Weathers has his, loses his vision, says, I can't make it. So says, all right, dude, we'll leave you here. We'll get you on our way back. They continue up the mountain. I had said before there was issues with ropes and things like that. So it's, taking, it's going slower than they would like. And you have that 1 to 2 p.m. turnaround time, which we, just, we talked about. Okay, so we're getting near the top, right? And there's this guy named Doug Henson who is on Rob Hall's team. And he's sort of, he's lagging behind a little bit. This was, I, I can't remember if it was his second or third attempt uh, of going up the mountain uh, with Rob Hall. So he was at this point a personal friend. You spent months and months and months with this person. And he had to turn back um, on his previous uh, times attempting to summit. So he is really close now, but he's struggling. It's not doing all that great, but he is dead set on getting to the top. And Rob Hall understands how close he is and knows that, you know, how many chances is this guy going to get? Like, I, I, I'm going to try to get him to the top. So the remaining people in Scott Fisher's team uh, and in Rob Hall's team, they summit. They get there. Woohoo! Party time. We made it. Everything we've gone through on this insane climb and freezing conditions is worth it. This is it. On top of the world. Everybody is hooting and hollering, having a grand old time. And Doug Henson is still sort of struggling to get up there with Rob. So eventually, uh, Rob does summit with Doug Henson. They get to the top. Doug Henson is just utterly exhausted, like Kind of too exhausted. And he he's fulfilled his dream. He's made it to the top. And Rob Hall calls back to camp. Base camp says, hey, I made it with Doug. Everybody else made it. They're on their way back down. And, uh, you know, we're good to go. We're going to head back down to camp four. And, you know, we'll let you know how it's going. Base camp says, all right. Hey, just so you know, looks like some fishy weather may be rolling in. All right, yeah, you know, we dealt with it last night. Okay, all right, we'll keep our eyes open. It's cold and windy up here, they reported, but we'll we'll keep our eyes open. So they begin their descent back down the mountain. What ends up happening is numerous uh, uh, guides and, and things like that are heading back down the mountain, and they're all going past Beck Weathers, who's still sitting there with his, like, fogged-over eyes, 
And they're like, hey, man, you want to, like, go back down? Like, it, you know, it's not safe. You should come down. He's like, no, nah, I'm waiting for Rob Hall. You know, I'll be fine. And they're like, all right, man, you know, it's your choice. And this apparently happened numerous times where people are like, hey, start heading back down with us. He's like, no, nah, I'm good. I guess to make a long story short, Scott Fisher ends up making it to the summit. However, he gets to the summit very, very late. And everyone was like, huh? Like, you're up there too late, bro. And... And everybody that that went past him uh, along the route said that he appeared abnormally slow. He seemed slightly, not delusional, but he didn't seem as sharp as he normally was. Something seemed off about him. And many people reported this. He just, Fisher seemed, he seemed exhausted. He didn't seem right. And he should know better than that. So he summits and he starts heading back down and this storm rolls in and it was kind of the storm that had been hitting them the night before this storm rolls in and it's bad. Everyone says that, you know, conditions can change rapidly on Mount Everest, but this storm one minute you could look at, you could look down the mountain and you could see some of the other camps below and then within a minute or two, clouds rolled in and you couldn't see five feet in front of you. Like, I can't imagine how scary that must have been. And so snow is whipping, very high winds. Apparently the temperature just plummeted because there's no more sunlight. It is freezing up there. Low visibility. Where the hell are you going? when you can't see what you're doing on top of a mountain, everything is white and now black clouds are all around you and snow's whipping in your face. It must be so freaking disoriented. I can't even imagine. It sounds terrifying. And so everyone's trying to head back down the mountain caught in the storm. And, and it's now become very dangerous very, very quickly because nobody dares to go up the mountain in those kind of conditions. You got, you had to get stuck in it. They'd got stuck in it coming down. Eventually, uh, the guy, uh, Beck Weathers, who is just chilling, waiting for Rob Hall, he doesn't come back. Rob Hall doesn't make it back to him. And even he knows, as the weather conditions are getting worse and worse, it's it's time to go. I don't know where Rob is. He got caught up. But some other guys from his team are like, hey, dude, like let's get going. And he decides to get up. And they're helping him because he can hardly see. And he's going back down with the rest of the team. At one point, somebody loses their footing something happens on the mountain and everybody falls and people are just exhausted. And these conditions, like I said, are swirling, horrible winds, cold. Everyone was tired from summiting. It's hard enough to get down in perfect conditions and it's really taking its toll on people. Now Beckweathers who can't see pretty much can't move anymore. He's just laying there. It's getting really bad. And there was a Japanese woman who was on uh, Rob Hall's team, Yasuko Namba. I might be mispronouncing that, but uh, she was also doing very, very poorly. And she begins to not react. So that's not good. This is a very bad sign. What ends up happening is some of the guys on the team, they are like, got to get everybody up. We got to continue. And they decide to leave those behind who can't continue. And this is just sort of the laws of the mountain. You know, some people agree with it. Some people don't. But this is survival. 
And these people made the choice that we have to save ourselves. If they can't get up, we can't carry them. Even though they're friends, we can't carry them. We have to continue if we want to stay alive. So they continue back down to Camp 4. And uh, they left some people stranded up there from both uh, Scott Fisher's team and Rob Hall's team. They get back to Camp 4, and there was this like insane Russian guide who was part of Scott Fisher's team. He didn't use oxygen or anything. This guy was a hardcore mountaineer and he's Russian and you know how Russians are. They're hardcore. And he was just like, I'm going to go back out and I'm going to try to bring back the pe- the members of our teams one by one. Everyone's like, dude, it's kind of a suicide mission. Yeah. It's not, we're lucky to even get back to camp. And he's like, I'm going. And they saw him disappear off up the mountain with his little headlight and just disappear and fade into the storm. And they were like, he's not coming back. Well, he does get up there and he rescues several uh, more members of the team that were stranded and fallen down and picks them up and helps bring them back. I think he brought back two more people if, if I'm correct, but he left um, Beck Weathers up there because when he tried to jostle him and move him around, Beck didn't, didn't really react. He looked like he was unconscious did the same thing to the Japanese woman and she doesn't react and it really looks like she's dead. She may have had very shallow breathing, but she is clearly on her way out. And probably the largest uh, reason for her passing away quickly, uh, more quick than some of the other people is purely because she was a very small woman. She had a small body frame, so she has a small body mass, and she's just not able to produce enough heat and retain that heat uh, within her body. She's just a small person, a very good climber, uh, very talented in that regard. In fact, she had summited all seven of the peaks around the world, and it just happens that Everest got her. Unfortunately, she freezes to death, and she dies on Everest. The Russian dude, he decides that... Uh, Beck Weathers is too bad, so he passes on him, sees the Japanese woman, like we said, she's dead, and he he uh, he decides to continue uh, uh, back to base camp four because this is ridiculous. He's got to get out of this cold. He's done all he can. He comes back to base camp four. Everyone was shocked that he had even rescued these other people. They were just like, dude, you're the man. Like, that's incredible act of, of being a hero. Heroicism. Heroicism? heroism i prefer now up on top of the mountain rob hall is essentially stuck with doug henson doug henson's conditions have deteriorated and this dude is uh kind of a lost cause uh but rob doesn't want to give up on him this is a friend of his now this is a good friend and doug is delirious he can barely stand he's falling he is, um, he's a mess. He's in really bad shape. And Rob radios down to base camp that he's still on the, uh, the South summit, South Ridge. And they're like, dude, that's not good. Like the storm's really bad. And it's like, like nighttime and you're up there. And he's like, I know, <laughs> Like he knows he doesn't really think he's going to make it. And so they call one of the other guides on his team, this guy named Andy Harris. And they're like, Andy, Rob and Doug are stuck up on the ridge. Would you be able to go help them? Somebody and some of the other guys and 
that he was with. They're like, now nah, we're heading back down. And he makes a, a really amazing decision and a really selfless act. And he decides that he's going to go back up and help Rob Hall and Doug, right? And But there was confusion going on about, because Rob and them, they said, bring us oxygen. We need more oxygen tanks. You know, we're up in the death zone. We're dying up here. And he he there was this confusion because they had brought extra tanks with him and he's trying to go through them and he thinks that they're empty or half empty and he's like kind of panicking a little bit before he's going to try to go back up and help rob and this led to other mountaineers that were with him saying that no it appeared to us that there was oxygen in the tanks so again there's confusion happening it's like the perfect storm here some people believe that Andy Harris was showing the first signs of hypoxia or altitude sickness. He wasn't thinking clearly. Things weren't adding up. They weren't making sense in what he was saying, even at that moment. It seemed just confused. It seemed confused. He grabbed the remaining oxygen tanks and left. By the time he gets up to Rob... Rob is uh, up against the wall on this very, very thin ridge. And he's like, where's dude? Like, where's Doug? I don't know if you said dude, but he's like, where's Doug? And Rob's like, he's gone. At some point, Rob lost Doug and Doug fell off the side of the mountain. Yeah. I guess when you're super exhausted and you're cold and you've, you've basically lost your mind, you, uh, you might walk off a mountain uh, so yeah, he walked off the edge and uh, nobody's ever seen his body again or, or been recovered. So uh, Doug fell to his death. He was probably going to die anyway. Uh, his conditions had deteriorated so much. And so it's Andy and it's Rob on top of the mountain. And they call back to base camp. And they're like, we can't get out of here. Like, we're stuck up here in the storm. There's no sense in us trying to get out of here. Rob's exhausted at this point now. Andy's exhausted by going back up to help him. And they call back to base camp that, hey, we're going to stay up here. And base camp knows this is extremely bad. You don't just stay up on the top of the mountain overnight in a severe blizzard. You don't do it. The next morning, they talk to Rob Hall. And amazingly enough, he's still alive on top of the mountain. He survived the night. He's in bad shape, though. He's in real bad shape. He's out of oxygen. And as we've talked about before, in the death zone, you have 48 hours or less before your body dies because the human body is not designed uh, for that amount of oxygen that is in the air. Your body cannot absorb the small amount of oxygen. There's not enough oxygen in the air to provide your body with life, with enough that it needs. So you're going to die. Rob is still stuck up on the summit. And they're like, okay, well, Andy's there. And Rob's like, I don't know where he is. So now Andy's gone. And no one knows for sure. It's hard to say, but it's believed that Andy, again, possibly suffering from hypoxia, fell off the side of the mountain. One way or another, he's gone. And there's there's a tiny little area where Rob was. So there's nowhere else he could have gone but down. So Andy's gone now too. Just we're dropping like flies here. And Rob is so exhausted, doesn't have any oxygen. He knows he can't make it. He knows it's not going to happen. And this really crazy, very touching story is 
Basecamp was in touch with Rob Hall's wife in New Zealand, and she was pregnant uh, with their baby. And it was about, I can't remember if she was two months pregnant or the baby was to be born in two months. I forget. But either way, she's pregnant. I guess that doesn't really matter. And at this point, a rescue attempt to get to Rob had been called off due to the poor conditions from the blizzard the night before. And base camp knew that nobody was going to get to him. So they call up to Rob and they're like, Rob, the rescue's off, man. Nobody can get there. And he knows. He knows the mountain as well as anybody. He knows it's over. He knows this is it. And he's freezing on the side of the mountain, dying from oxygen. And what they actually are able to do is patch in his wife, like I said, calling from New Zealand, and radio him up on top of the mountain and talk to him. And they talk to each other. And he again says to her, Hey, can you name our baby Sarah? And she's like, Yeah, I'll name yeah, I'll name our baby Sarah. Rob Hall's last words to his wife were I love you. Sleep well. Try not to worry too much. And those are the last words Rob ever said. So he actually was able to talk to his wife on top of the mountain uh, before passing away. Rob's body has since fallen over the ridge 12,000 feet where it remains today. And uh, yeah, pretty tragic story, right? It's pretty pretty gut-wrenching stuff for sure. Uh, but we're not over because uh, Scott Fisher, remember we talked about him? That big guy with the big attitude and the larger-than-life personality who just flew up this mountain in an attempt to catch up with his expedition and had summited too late? Yeah, I think you're putting all the pieces together. These are all very bad signs for for Scott. Scott was found by the Russian dude, the the crazy Russian climber. Went back up to try to find him and found Scott Fisher laying in the snow, dead from frostbite, hypothermia. He had passed on. And it's unfortunate because I don't think Scott had to die. You know, some of these other circumstances with Rob and the other guy, if they had made better decisions, possibly... They could have lived, but this bad storm rolled in. And like I said before, it's the perfect conditions, uh, the perfect storm just for, for tragedy to happen. But I think Scott Fisher's could have been avoided. Scott flew up the mountain like a crazy man without following uh, proper precautions. And I think he thought maybe, maybe he was too overconfident. Maybe he thought too much of his abilities. And... Possibly that led to his demise and and ultimately, you know, he fell victim to the mountain like many other people do. So Scott Fisher's dead. The Japanese girl's dead. Doug is dead. Andy is dead. And Rob Hall is dead. So what? This sucks. That one guy that we talked about, Beck Weathers, who had collapsed and he could not see. This is the guy who had his bad, bad blindness. Well, he had now been passed by uh, at least two rescue attempts. This guy's done. Forget about him. Move on. Let's help somebody else. Amazingly, he finds a way to stand up. And this is disgusting what I'm about ready to tell you. This is through like interviews with him. He said he started to see visions of his wife and his kids. And that's not the disgusting part. 
but he started to see visions of his wife and his kids. And that's what got him to stand up, sort of rewoke him. He was gone and it, it just saw visions of them and decided that he had to, he had to, he had to, he had to get to them. He looked around at himself, saw that he had no gloves on and his fingers were like black and gooey, gross, like they were so frostbitten and they were dying. His fingers were literally dying. His hands were dying in front of him and his one arm was frozen in like a perched up position. Like, so his arm was just frozen solid in like an upright sort of, I'm doing, I'm doing a visual reference here. You guys can't see, but his arm was propped up and frozen fingers deteriorating, falling off. He couldn't see it, but at the time his nose and his face was black and frostbitten and dying. It's amazing that this dude was able to lift himself up. He is like the walking dead. He's a walker. He's like a zombie at this point. And he sees the Japanese woman. Hey, he knows she's dead. He's got to continue on. There's nobody around him, but there's only one way down. So he follows and he gets into camp four and he walks in and everybody is shell shocked when they see him walk through the door. Well, there's really no door. They're tense, but you get the picture. Walk into camp. Everyone's like, holy smokes. They said that he, he really looked like a walking corpse. They could not believe he was alive. They tried to heat him up and, you know, things like that. Give him some tea, whatever. Nobody believed he was going to live. They ended up putting him in a tent, essentially buying him by himself. And we're like, you know what? Unfortunately, he's going to die. Let's just sort of like let him go by himself over there in that tent. And, you know, let nature take its course. So they open the tent to check on him if he's dead. And he's like, I want to go back down. They're like, what? You're still alive? So, yeah, this guy is just defying all odds. He totally should be dead. Totally 100% should be dead. And they start helping him back down the mountain. And now they're like, you know what? He's not going to make it. There's this other guy who I didn't even get into. was from, I think, a, a Taiwan climbing team. One of his like friends died or whatever, his climber friends, and he was in horrible condition. It's just like everyone was dying in this storm. They get to this spot where like, we need, we, we, we can't get you guys down the rest of the mountain. You guys are in such bad shape, but we can't get helicopters up this high. There's no way we can rescue you. And so base camp uh, for their teams calls uh, Beck Weathers wife named peach or peaches something like that and she is in texas so they call her she starts going crazy calling all these different like you know congressmen or whatever like government people to try to call embassies in nepal and tibet or whatever trying every avenue and path that she can possibly think of which must have been so incredibly hard to try to get somebody to take a chopper Take a chop, get the chopper, and get and get up to the mountain to try to help her husband. Amazingly enough, they find this military guy. I think he was Nepalese. I forget. But they find a military guy who is willing to fly the helicopter up that high. And I, I it was 20-something thousand feet. I forget exactly. Helicopters can't go that high. The air is too thin. You're going to lose lift, and you're going to crash. Simple as that. This guy defies all the rules of gravity and says, you know, I'm going to go for it. 
And by golly gosh, does he actually make it to the camp? He gets to the camp and this helicopter was supposed to be for Beck Weathers, right? And Beck Weathers gives up his position to this other climber who's in awful shape as well, who loses all his fingers and stuff like that too. And uh, he gives it to this guy and he was like, you know, I didn't think that helicopter was coming back. That heli- Nobody had ever been that high in a helicopter to begin with. I thought that was that was it for me. And this was like my last defining great move of my life. That if I die on this mountain, on Everest, everybody will know that I was the guy who gave up my life to help this guy. And I was willing to do it. And it was an amazing gesture, you know, an amazing gesture. Luckily for this guy, this guy's got, he's like a cat. He's got like nine lives or something. Amazingly enough, the helicopter gets back up and is able to rescue him as well. So, uh, he, like I said before, he loses his nose, parts of his face, his fingers, his feet. Oh man, he really got wrecked by the mountain, but he lived and he should have died for sure. So we ended up losing, I think it was eight people on the mountain on that that day and night. This 1996 disaster is far and away the most famous tragedy to hit the mountain for sure. And there's all these great documentaries online. And uh, there's also a movie about it, which you've heard me play music throughout this podcast. And the movie is called Everest. And it stars Jake Gyllenhaal and some other people I never heard of, but... It's a good movie. I had to watch it um, as I was learning about Mount Everest and researching. I was like, I gotta watch the movie too, and uh, it's pretty accurate. I've I've done readings about what is true and what is not true, Hollywood versus reality, and most of the story is is pretty realistic. Again, some of the dialogue and all that is Hollywood writers, you know, BS, and uh, a few things were fabricated. It's a movie, you know. Not everything's accurate, of course, but. But the general what happened to each real-life person and how they died and stuff is more or less accurate. So it was a very interesting movie. I enjoyed it. I actually thought it was a good movie. Uh, again, it's called Everest. And uh, it, it has a good soundtrack, which is why I wanted to include it. I thought it would only be appropriate that the Everest soundtrack was in the Everest podcast. I think what's crazy, too, is that whole disaster story I just told you about is also the same day that Green Boots and his team died. That 1996 storm just wiped out a lot of people. Another ill-advised hiker was Thomas Weber. He was a German climber, and he suffered from an unusual disability where he would get blindness at a high altitude. Now, he'd approach several commercial operators and companies and said, hey, I want to climb Everest, and all of them rejected him, and he couldn't find any Sherpas who would help him either because they all said that he was too much of a risk. Well, he controversially hired a Dutch climber named Harry Kirkstra. This dude had only climbed Mount Everest once before, and it was the previous year. And even he needed to be helped down. So you can see that this is probably ill-advised, right? So on the summit day, Thomas lost his eyesight and his coordination uh, above the third step, which is on the north face. And the third step is way up in the death zone, and that's the last, uh, they call it, there's one, two, and three, and this is the third step. 
right before you would hit the summit. And, uh, yeah, he was persuaded to turn back down. He, everybody, even his guide, was like, this is a bad idea. We need to get you back down, bro. And it wasn't until he got down to the second step that he suddenly collapsed and died And uh, while descending a ladder. Ooh, that sucks. So lots of people do this. They make this mistake of wanting so badly to conquer the mountain that it leads to their demise over something that probably could have been avoided or they hire somebody like this, like this Joe Schmo. They hire him and, uh, and you die as a result. It stinks. Here's another story of somebody who chose a poor guide to help uh, take them to the top. It's the story of Nils Antazana. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm saying that right. He's a wealthy Bolivian-born American, and he was climbing Mount Everest on the south side. Now, Niles hired an Argentinian named Gustavo Lisi, and this guy was his guide, and he believed him to be an Everest summiter. However, Gustavo had faked his own summit claim with stolen photographs. You son of a bitch. And to top it off, he had a history of abandoning clients on the mountains. Could you believe that? You hire somebody to take you to the top, and at some point they're just like, nah, you're on your own, bro, and just like turn around or like run away at night. That's freaking ridiculous. This Gustavo guy, he was like, so what? Who cares? Whatever. I'm leaving you. And unfortunately, uh, he left basically this guy Niles for dead. And he was found uh, deceased at a place called The Balcony. It was about several hours below Camp 4 on the south side. To make it even worse, this this phony uh, Gustavo, he didn't report the incident until two days later. And by this time, the uh, rescue attempt was completely out of question. Another very famous case is Francine's Arcintiva. Something like that. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing her name, but we'll just call her Francine. Francie. Francis. Francine. I mean no disrespect to these people. I just, I just cannot pronounce names. This is not my thing. So she was trying to reach the summit with her husband, Sergi, and they had two aborted attempts already. So this last time, they're like, we got to make it. We got to get up to the top. And they wanted to do it without the supplemental oxygen. So again, very risky, but they believed they could do it. And you know what? By God, they did. They get to the summit, but unfortunately, they summited dangerously late in the afternoon. This is kind of the kiss of death. We've talked about this. This is too late. So they start heading back down. And at some point during the evening, they got separated. And they were by themselves. So Sergi made his way down the following morning to camp. And when he got there, he realized that his wife wasn't there. So he very, very quickly decided that he had to go back up. And everyone's like, this is extremely dangerous, Sergi. And he got more oxygen and he got medicine. And he took off back up the mountain to find her. A very heroic effort. Now, not everybody really knows exactly what happened. The details are kind of sketchy, but it seems like another team uh, found her and she was appeared to be half conscious. She appeared to have oxygen deprivation and frostbite, and she was unable to move on her own. 
So they attended to her with oxygen and they carried her down as far as they could until they became depleted of their own oxygen and were exhausted. They became too fatigued from the effort. So they ended up uh, descending back down the mountain. This was a nice effort by these people. These were some people who decided to help somebody in distress, help somebody who was clearly in need of aid, someone who was going to die if they did not do something. These own guys gave up their summit bid to help this woman. They try to help bring her back down. Unfortunately, it's too much for them. They give up and they are actually, they actually encounter Sergi on his way back up to find her. This is the last time that Sergi was ever seen alive. The following morning, Ian Woodhall is a very, very good mountaineer, and several other uh, teams encountered Francine uh, while on their way to the summit. She was found where she had been left the evening before. Uh, they found Sergi's ice axe and his rope. They were, uh, they were nearby, so he had gotten close, but they could not find him. Woodall uh, decided to abandon his summit attempt and tried to help Francis. For He helped her for about an hour or so, but because of her poor conditions and it was a very, very unsafe area and very cold weather and winds, they were forced to abandon her and descend back to camp. Uh, she died in the exact spot where they left her. And furthermore, it's just insane. She was still clipped into the guide rope. So she's right there. You can't miss her when you're going up to the top. And her corpse got a nickname, the Sleeping Beauty. Nobody knew what happened to Sergi, her husband. Where the hell did he get off to? Well, his mysterious disappearance was discovered the following year. They discovered Sergi's body lower on the mountain, apparently dead from a fatal fall. Uh, that he had probably, you know, must have happened while he was attempting to rescue his wife. Apparently, her last words to the teams who unfortunately had to leave her, her last words were, don't leave me here to die. Here's kind of an inspirational tale. So Ian Woodall, he was the guy who saw her, and she said her last words to him when he was forced to leave her. He led an expedition in 2007 with the purpose of getting to the bodies of Francis, Artie, and Green Boots, and he wanted to bury them because they were both plainly visible from the nearby climbing routes. Frances's body was visible to climbers for nine years from her death in 1998 to 2007. On May 23, 2007, Woodall was able to locate her body, and after a brief ritual, he dropped her body off at a lower location on the mountain, removing the body from view. So again, he couldn't, couldn't bury her, couldn't do it. But he was able to push her off so she wasn't visible anymore. So it's the best you could sort of do to having a proper burial on Mount Everest. I'm not sure if he's the one who buried Green Boots or not. Nobody knows for sure. It definitely didn't happen in 2007 because Green Boots didn't disappear until 2014. So kind of some mysteries up there of what's happening with these corpses. In 2002, a guy named Marco Sifrid, that's not at all what, it, what his name is, he was a French snowboarder and mountaineer. And this, this dude, he was the first one to descend Mount Everest on a snowboard in 2001. 
in 2002, he decided that he was going to do it again, but a different section going down Mount Everest. He went out with a team of Sherpas, and he summited around 2.10 p.m., and he showed very little enthusiasm for this summit. Apparently, what he is said to have said was, I'm tired, tired, too much climbing. Uh, Weather conditions began to change rapidly at this point. The Sherpas urged him not to go. He ignored their warnings, and after only a half hour to hour's rest, began making his way towards the slopes where he was beginning his snowboard descent. The Sherpas saw him leave, and they could see the distant image of a man periodically, and then at one point, they said that they saw him standing, and they didn't really know what he was doing. And then they said they saw him slide silently down the mountain. And they eventually reached a point where they could not see him anymore. Uh, His snowboard tracks disappeared, and his body has never been found. Now, many of these stories, they're very... They're very sad. You know, I'm sorry that this happened to these people. Uh, Some of them summited, some of them didn't. They were trying an absolutely incredible feat. And, you know, I tip my hat to them. I congratulate them on on what they were able to accomplish. The other mountains they climbed to the top of and and Everest and everything. Incredible job. I'm sorry to hear that those people passed away and uh, are sort of preserved in time of their death on the mountain. Very morbid fascination that I have with it and lots of other people who've done articles and documentaries on it. It's a a pretty unique thing that there's like an open graveyard uh, on the slopes of Mount Everest. But with that being said, all these poor souls that have died on Mount Everest, there's this uh, crazy daredevil guy named Will Hoff, and he is from the Netherlands, and this guy can do it in a pair of shorts and uh, sandals. That's right. You heard what I said. This guy's insane. This dude is able to withstand sub-freezing temperatures, and he does not wear a t-shirt. He's literally only wearing shorts and, like, sandals or boots. This guy, he doesn't have a shirt on. He doesn't have a jacket on. He doesn't have gloves on. He doesn't have a hat on. He's a crazy man, but he's not a crazy man because he's not dead. So he has these breathing techniques that he uses, and he's able to... That's the technique right there. And he can breathe in more oxygen than, I guess, the body needs. And then he does like this weird like compression thing with his head. I don't understand. I don't know how he's doing it. But he's able to withstand insanely cold temperatures. So this guy has, like, there's pictures of him, like, swimming past icebergs, like, in the ocean. Like, what the hell? Like, anybody else would be dead in that water in, like, minutes with hypothermia. He's cruising by icebergs, swimming. There's pictures of him climbing all sorts of mountains with no shirt on and just a backpack. And these pictures of him inside ice baths. He's broken all these Guinness Book World Records for sitting in these like clear tubes with just ice poured around him. And it's just insane what this guy is able to withstand. It's like the true mind over matter master of the world. And some people say that he has some sort of uh, uh, a predisposition to cold. You know, he's kind of a freak. He's an X-Man. He's an X-Man. What do you want to call it? 
there's something about him that he's he's a mutant. He's able to handle it. And uh, maybe it's something genetically, and scientists have done all kinds of tests on him. And they also did this test where they gave him, like, a disease. Like, they, he was in a hospital, and they gave him a shot of something that was supposed to make him sick. And it didn't. Like, he just had, like, mind over matter. Like, I can beat this. And he's claimed that he his techniques could, like, cure cancer and stuff, which is a little, you know, like I said, this kind of a insane dude. Um almost kind of like a cult leader in a type because he actually has people who can pay and he will teach you the techniques so that you're able to withstand these cold temperatures. And people have said that he's very, uh, he's, he's very magnetic and he's, uh, he, he just, he pulls you in and he's like almost like a cult leader. Like it's like real weird. He's like, so the power of positivity is like, so, so addicting to these people who, who are in his like, I don't know, club or whatever, his organization of cold weather people. But he can also do it in hot conditions. He went, I think it was across the Nambia Desert or something, I'm forgetting where, without even a bottle of water. So I thought originally, I was like, oh my God, this dude can withstand cold temperatures? That's incredible. Can he, can he, do, can he do the heat, though? Can he do the hot weather? Apparently, he can do the hot weather, too. So this guy truly is a mutant of some sort. But again, like I said, he's most famous for doing the cold weather stuff. And this guy uh, went pretty high up Mount Everest in nothing but shorts and some shoes and uh, and a backpack, which I find amazing because we just listed a whole host of very talented <laughs> mountaineers who have done this for their whole lives who have died on Mount Everest from being too cold and too exhausted and this guy, I'll find out exactly, I'll look this up real quick, you won't even know I looked it up, how high he went on Mount Everest. He did not make it to the top. A lot of people believe, mistakenly, that he made it to the summit. He did not. He had to turn back because he said he had a foot injury. Now, whether that's true, it's possible he could have really had a foot injury, which he had to turn back. Maybe it was a combination of, holy shit, I'm halfway up this mountain and my foot hurts, I should probably turn back. I think it, it was probably a combo, and he'll never admit it because he, he wants you to think he, cold never affects him. Who knows? Maybe I'm totally wrong, and he did just hurt his foot. Um, maybe he realized it was too much uh, at a certain point. But either way, the fact that he was even able to go as far as he did is astounding without having a shirt on and just shorts. That's absolutely ridiculous. People die of frostbite up there all the time, every year, and this guy's doing it. No clothes on. He got to 22,000 feet. The summit is 29,000 feet. He made it. He made it like 60, 70% of the way. At least. That's ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous before he had to turn back. So that is a story of somebody who, I guess against all odds, is... uh very successful. Now, the other interesting thing about Mount Everest is we talked uh, a lot about the, the different camp levels, um, the South Coal, and then we started talking about the North Side where um, different people have died, climbers and whatnot, gotten stuck, the Green Boots Cave and all those kind of things. And like I said, it's kind of morbid, but on a happier tone, uh, you know, only 4% of the total amount of people that have summited Mount Everest have died. So it's actually a, a pretty low percentage. 
most people, um, thousands of climbers have made it to the summit and they have felt the incredible feeling of achieving their goals and having success and uh, a story that they can tell for the rest of their lives. When they're old and withered, they can tell their grandkids that they they got to the top of Mount Everest. And I think that's pretty freaking cool because, like I said, I can barely even get out of bed some days. So to be able to get to the top of the world, I think, is truly an incredible feat. And the fact that many people have had these horrible nightmares and died up there just goes to show you that it's not something to be taken lightly. That is an absolutely incredible feat. They should be proud of it. So again, I tip my hat off to everybody who's ever attempted it. I don't care if you didn't make it and you're still on that mountain or if you were successful. Uh, congratulations. What a good job you have done. Uh, that's going to do it here for the Mount Everest uh, podcast, guys. I really hope you've enjoyed it. And I definitely recommend go out to YouTube, watch that movie, uh, Everest, look up all the stuff you can find about this, see all the pictures and find more stories and more people who are still up there. It's just a really, really cool topic. And there's so much that you can Google and research on the internet about it. So I definitely recommend you guys uh, continue. This is your homework assignment. You're going to follow up on this, people. You, I want to see a five-page written report on Monday on my desk. And uh, that's not true. I don't really care. But I just think you guys can learn a lot more beyond this podcast about it. That's uh, super interesting. So, guys, I do thank you for tuning in. You can email me at philinterrupted at gmail.com. You can check me out at philinterrupted on Twitter, even though I don't use it. Maybe you could give me a reason to use it. Who cares? So what? Whatever. Check out the other back catalog of Phil Interrupted on circularlogicstudios.com. Boy, I don't know about you guys, the weather has changed for the worse here in the studio. It's getting a little chilly. I'll tell you that. I'm getting freezing down here. So I'm going to end the show right now, guys. Thank you so much for listening to Fell Interrupted. We will catch you next time on Fell Interrupted. Making moves. Peace out. These giant crevasses, that's what they called them on all the things that I watched and read about. They called them crevasses. I thought they were crevices. I don't know. I'm just a Yankee doodle from New Jersey. I don't know these uh, terms. So this guy has like, there's pictures of him like swimming past icebergs, like in the ocean. Like, what the hell?